Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. And, and feeling a bit today like Captain Ahab after the, after the white whale. Uh, and in my case, the white fail, whale would be the truth about what's happening with COVID and the lockdowns and, and what's real, what's not real. We're hearing a lot that I think is, is uh, inaccurate and hopefully today we'll get to the bottom. Last week I had Jeffrey Tucker on, who's the uh, director of editorial director at the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, I think one of the best boutiques going um, studying these kind of phenomena. Uh, and we thought it'd be useful together. We talked afterwards about bringing his colleague, uh, senior research fellow, Philip Magnus on the show, because Philip's done a lot of work on the, the scientific research, um, the statistical models and, and so forth surrounding the, uh, the pandemic. So Jeffrey, Philip, Phil, welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, Phil, let's start with you. Uh, what about, we, we all got into this last year with the computer models. Imperial College told us we were all going to die and in great percentages of our population. And we, 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 the government's locked down, taking that as, the, uh, as, 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 as science. What about those models and, and where are we now? Well, if everyone remembers back to uh, almost a year ago on March 16th, that's when Imperial College of London uh, and a team led by this uh, statistical modeler, he's actually a physicist by the name of Neil Ferguson, released these catastrophic projections of 2.2 million people in the United States were going to die of COVID-19. And this is the, uh, the turning point of the scientific discussion around COVID in both the United States and the UK, because he had a similar catastrophic model where uh, half a million people would die in the UK. And this release from Imperial College swayed both governments to basically flip on what they were going to do in terms of their COVID policy and uh, urge the adoption of lockdowns. So uh, this is probably the biggest turning point in the entire pandemic um, in terms of the policy response. It moved uh, two major Western governments, uh, supposedly liberal democracies, away from a uh, mitigation strategy and towards the suppression strategy built around lockdowns. Well, there are a lot of us skeptical about that model um, almost immediately after it came out, but we didn't know a lot then. What do we know now that we didn't know then about the actual outcomes? Well, I think first and foremost, the Imperial College model has failed catastrophically in its predictions. It's always been too high. And that's even compared to some of the other models. There was a study that came out in November that compared Imperial's uh, strategy for modeling the pandemic against six, under, six other models that had run. And it's the clear outlier. It's the one that always runs hot and it runs hot by uh, significant amounts. So the further out you get in time, uh, the, the more it overshoots the death projections. Well, Jeffrey, you talked last time, I think it'd be worth expanding on it, the, the notion that the models really ignored human behavior. Same, same issues we have with all like economic or econo econometric models. I oh, think right. I pronounced that right. Yeah, no, I mean, human behavior is not even part of the modeling. It's, it's, it's entirely an agent-based model. Uh, I was watching <laughs> last night, there was a, a summit, uh, or yesterday, last week sometime, a summit on zero 
COVID. These are people who believe you can suppress, you know, SARS-CoV-2 and, and wipe it out by driving down the r not through extreme isolation, all this kind of stuff. And a guy was presenting as a computer scientist and he was presenting the relationship between infections and, and mitigation strategies, non-pharmacal inter interventions. And it was purely a computer model. I mean, he said, well, let's see what happens. Uh, so the pathogen comes, we shut schools, uh, sporting events and businesses. And now all the cases drop, drop, drop. And, but, but then uh, we might be tempted to open them again, but then the cases will go up again. So what we really need to do, and he reruns the model, he says, we need, we need to cl close schools, uh, businesses, sporting events, churches, you know, and have lockdown orders. And now look what happens. And you're watching this and thinking, this man is a psychopath, <laughs> you know? I mean, to, to actually believe you can model a society without any regard for human rights or dreams or aspirations or the law or anything. They basically treat uh, human society like a giant computer game. Yeah. And I, I mean that literally, if you go back to some of the interviews with some of these people, uh, they all liken uh, their computer models and the ideas behind what they're doing with COVID to, uh, if you remember, if you grew up in the 1990s, there was this computer game called SimCity 2000. I love SimCity. Uh, Exactly, exactly. There's all these derivatives, there's the Sims, there's all these uh, uh, games that came out of it. And they're, they're about how uh, these little, little fake computerized human beings interact in a city. And you have several epidemiologists said that we, we use that as our model for figuring out how COVID would spread uh, through society. Uh, it's just basically treating it like a computer game. Well, there's similarity to that because I, it's probably changed, I, you know, with all the differences in games in the last 20 years. But when I was playing, the way you could win for sure was you got rid of that monster that came in every every 20 minutes and destroyed everything. <laughs> so COVID's the monster that flies in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we brought back that uh, flash forward 20 years, the COVID sort of seems like that monster, which which leads me to the question is, which how, how lethal is this? I mean, if, if we, to back up, the pandemic in 1918, what, 30 million people died. There was a lethality rate in the mid-teens or something like that. And there are other SARS and some other examples of pandemics, which really are scary. And you really do need to. Um, sure. But, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Ever since the, from the beginning, we keep asking this question, how bad is it? And we want to know, you know, is yeah. this bad? We want to know. Or, we want to know. Yeah. Or is it, is it uh, uh, bad? Is it 1918? Or is it, or is it more like you know a normal end, endemic equilibrium flu? You know, coming, and it's funny. Even the CDC has uh, um, sort of a, have graded scales: mild, a little serious, really severe, and catastrophic. And they color code it, and you're supposed to adopt these disease mitigation strategies based on how serious it is. Uh, the problem is that you don't really know. It's certainly at the outset of something or even in the middle of something, uh, what the waves are gonna look like, who is most effective. You can, you can maybe kind of get a sense, but there's a lot of fog of war associated with every right. pandemic, you know? And the problem with the models is they always presume you know. You know that you can, the pathogen comes and it's got a name <laughs> and it comes tagged color code. I'm SARS-CoV-2 and I'm really red, you know. <laughs> it's not, it, you know, and so one of the confusions we've had about this uh, all along is we don't really know how to talk about it. The problem is 
there are very, very severe outcomes under some cases of SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. Very severe outcomes, uh, even for people under the age of 60, given certain health conditions or immunodeficiencies. And you know, there are always anecdotes of terrible, terrible things that happened. Um, but 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 um, they're just but they're just that they're anecdotes. Right? Yeah, they're right. anecdotes. And, 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 and I, I had a very I had a very scary meeting with a congressman 15 years ago, 20 years. I just come to Washington. I was running a public company, and I want to understand how Congress thinks. And I'm in talking with this guy, and he says, well, "We're going to do this law because this happened." And I said, "Wait a second! You're doing you're you're going to write a law that's going to affect millions of businesses and tens of millions of people based on based on this anecdote." because of this bad thing that happened to this woman at this point in time we're supposed to change all our behavior based on on that it seems like that's a lot what we're uh, we're looking at here yeah yeah even the new york times this morning ran a huge article about did you see that headline it was about oh uh, lots of children suffering from long-term you know ailments and and death from from uh, SARS-CoV-2, but then you read it and there were three stories. There were three stories and no information about how common this is or even its relationship to the virus as such as versus other comorbidities. There's a lot of, it's press fear mongering. They just, they right. love it. Well, we've talked about this before. If we really believe that this was, that the lethality rate were 10% or something like that, we would have one view. We don't think that based on the science that we've looked at and the statistics we've looked at, and I took a lot of statistic classes as a kid, but we really can't find out what's true. And that brings me to, to the fact, and Jeffrey, you and I talked about, this is the most political of all pandemics, the most political of all health crises. And that if you've got, if you're leaning on the left, you've got one view, you're wearing three masks. And if you're on the right, you think the masks are, are ridiculous. And why don't you let us go back to um, our sporting events? What, what you, do you have some theories about that? Phil, why don't you give it a shot? Yeah, it's a thoroughly politicized pandemic. And unfortunately it's become that way uh, very quickly since, uh, since the outbreak of the, uh, uh, you know, the first wave back in January and February. Uh, the political battle lines were drawn, and it became associated with Trump. Uh, so there's a it didn't help that there's a major election overlaying it. But uh, to, to bring us back to the data, one of the things that, that has really stood out about uh, this is you know we've talked about anecdotes. You read the New York Times stories, and they'll, they'll focus on the one young person that had a really severe case. Uh, they'll focus on uh, on some really sad stories, but they're kind of outlier events. At the at the same time they're suppressing clear information that we've known since the spring about nursing homes. Yeah. We've had this massive scandal that just broke in the last week in, uh, in New York state with governor Cuomo, where he was uh, readmitting COVID positive patients into nursing homes. Uh, this is something we've known about since like last March. And it's just now breaking out into the public discussion. He made well, you know, you know, maybe yeah. there is, may, maybe there is justice can, you, you know, a, a scandal happening to Governor Andrew Cuomo. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The, the, the supposed hero of the pandemic, he wrote a book uh, talking about how wonderful he was. Uh, Anthony Fauci, as recent as December, was saying that Cuomo and New York State were the model and how to respond to coronavirus. Well, isn't I the, mean, <laughs> aren't, aren't the stats at something like uh, 
40% of all COVID deaths have occurred in nursing homes? Yeah, depending on the state. Yeah. That, maybe no. that's overall uh, nationwide. And and the the uh, severe outcomes associated with states is very much connected to the demographics of uh, the nursing home population. This is one of the reasons, uh, while well, South, South Dakota has, I yeah, think it's, it's a higher it's, percentage it's higher, higher of percentage nursing than, home than, for example, Vermont or something like that. Yeah. It's just a computer, it's a, a demographics and also a living condition. So, Nursing homes, uh, and you know, the, when when did the nursing home information come out? That was like in February. So right? yeah, the, the very first outbreak. If you remember back in Washington State when the first COVID cases arrived in the U.S., this is after the cruise ships, but uh, it, you know, the, the notice was it's arrived in Seattle. The first outbreak was a nursing home, and we knew it just uh, you know the virus rampages its way through these closed facilities. Yeah. Uh, nursing homes are places where you can actually get a fatality rate of like 10% of the population. Uh, and that's basically what it's been in Massachusetts, which has some of the best stats on it. Uh, we found that like one in 10 pre-COVID uh, nursing home patients has died from this disease uh, simply from it flowing through the nursing homes. And I think less than 1% of the population lives in a nursing home. Exactly. exactly. So it sort of leads you to, if you're a public policy person, a state or local authority, Maybe you ought to focus on that, not so much it, on everybody else. Yeah, isn't it so interesting? You know, that we all pretend we're doing science here. The very first U.S. really severe case was a, a, a nursing home. A nursing home. Yeah. And instead of saying, wow, we might have a nursing home problem, we said, lock down the whole country. Yeah. <laughs> so focus on everything but the one area where we know that this is a yeah. severe, uh, so, serious so, problem. So, so Phil, you're, you're an economic historian. You've written a lot. I want to get you back on to talk about the 1619 project sure. at some <laughs> point, but let's focus on the other. Uh, economic historian, is there any precedent in history of this kind of response to this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, virus or, 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 you know, bug or flu or whatever we want to call it. Yeah. I mean, you, you could go back to the Middle Ages and find uh, like this medieval style quarantines of closing off a city. And that's really the only precedent that we have. And of course, none of that's uh, nationwide or, or worldwide. Uh, and actually what you find in the evidence is prior to about oh March 2020, most epidemiologists considered this uh, lockdown approach to be kind of a fringe, dangerous theory that should not be uh, undertaken. And I went through, uh, you know, mounds of, of epidemiological literature going back decades, and it was report after report after report. Uh, as recently as the fall of 2019, Johns Hopkins University wrote a report for the CDC on pandemic influenza, and they said the one thing you should not do is, is lock down society. They said this is going to have uh, severe harms and very little in the way of benefits. So this you, goes all the way back. You know, so. what, I want to make sure everybody goes to the American Institute for Economic Research website because you've got a treasure trove there of, of information about this and a lot of other useful, useful, uh, whatever. And you guys sponsored the great Barrington statement. Right. And I guess you're, you're, you're based in Barrington. Uh, right. We, we should be clear about the language because people accuse us of having sponsored. We hosted the event. Okay. You, I, the well, well, let's clarify you, you hosted <laughs> yeah. and what, and what came, and there were a lot of very smart people there. I think yeah. was a fellow from Stanford there, Dr. J. Yeah, and I think was Scott Atlas there yet, or no. was, that, was he already working in the Trump White he was House? Was already in the White House. Yes. So what what was the gist of that? What did we? Because I think the, if if people 
who are of our point of view, more libertarian are looking for science. I think that's about as good a summation as the sciences we've got. You know, it was never intended to be some sort of radical statement. You know, it, it really is a plain statement of cell biology yeah. and, pu and public health and a plea that we focus on the problem uh, rather than pursue strategies that will have uh, adverse consequences long term and urged uh, people in non-vulnerable populations, which is almost everybody, to, to live life normally and, uh, in, and in anticipation that we will obtain, as we often do with these kinds of particular sort of viruses, herd immunity which is mm -hmm. a, you know, an evolutionary strategy, or it's, it's, a, it's a phrase to describe um, an empirical result we've seen again and again and again. Quick sidebar, herd immunity, it's been demonized, yet it's exactly the way these viruses play out. Could you give me a brief uh, yeah. description yeah. of what herd immunity is? I mean, herd immunity is basically a biological fact. And in the epidemiology literature before COVID, it's, it's like one of the standard things that appears in the first chapter of the textbook on, uh, on how the immune system works. Uh, we can think of it as uh, herd immunity is the cumulative effect now that we have a vaccine of people that have naturally acquired immunity by uh, getting the disease and recovering, plus those that have been vaccinated. So uh, these are two components that work hand in hand. Unfortunately, the media has completely distorted this and presented them as if they're adversarial or as if natural herd immunity uh, is, is like this dangerous strategy. It's not a strategy at all. It's a biological fact, similar to like gravity is a physical fact. So when we got backing up to when this all started, we ended up with these state and local officials playing God. And then they decided what was essential and what wasn't essential. And you were an essential worker, you weren't, you're gonna close this business, that business. They left Walmart open, but they, they closed the corner store. Um, you, you all are both exceptionally well-trained economists. Uh, explain why that's a catastrophic concept, essential versus non-essential. It's the essence of central planning. And we not only saw that between which stores got to stay open and which stores closed. In some states, like in Michigan, if you remember the videos where they had tape around the gardening section and the toy section and the electronics section. So it was like uh, you could even walk into a Walmart and certain products they were selling were deemed essential by the decree of the governor. And yet just across the state line in Ohio, those same sections were open. Uh, so it made no sense whatsoever beyond an arbitrary decree of some bureaucrat uh, in an office somewhere decided, you know, these are the products that people need and these are the products that they can do without for a few months. Uh, so it's complete political decision. Uh, what it does is it defies the ability of the consumer to, uh, to actually express their, their own preferences of what they want, what they need. I mean, you know better than anyone else what you need for a, um, um, a safe and comfortable life for the next week. You know what you want to consume when you go into the grocery store. A bureaucrat in some state office or some federal office does not know that. And what does any of this have to do with disease mitigation? Exactly. That's the thing that upsets me the most. I mean, they're pretending as if they're controlling the virus. They're only controlling people. Uh, and ruining lives. And they don't seem to care. One of the things that has troubled me, though, is the way Americans just sort of much knuckled under this. And, you know, I've, I've, you know, I think a lot about what are my central values. And I think a lot in terms of freedom sort of drives a lot of what I think ought to be and other, but the notion of freedom is not being taught in schools the way it was taught 
earlier on. And I think there's more emphasis on equality and uh, of outcomes. And I think that whole psychology has played into people's reaction to this. I can't imagine Americans letting themselves be locked down 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Thoughts? That goes all the way back to this Neil Ferguson fellow in the spring, and he gave a really revealing interview back in December uh, where he's recounting on how they implemented the lockdowns, how they sold the model. And, and he says that his aha moment was when he saw that Italy had copied communist China. And he said, you know, previously to this uh, event occurring, the discussion among his team of epidemiologists was, well, China's an authoritarian communist state, and they were able to execute the lockdown, but we just can't do that in the political system we have in the West. Then they saw Italy do it. They saw the population of Italy accept it. And they're like, aha, the floodgates are open. We can actually copy this approach and strategy and extrapolate it to, and apply it to the world. Um, really, I think what they're playing on, though, is another theme that the modelers have been really atrocious on, and that is the alarmism, that is the panic, that is the overprojection of deaths, these catastrophic models that say millions of people will die, that breeds fear into the public's mind. And when you see an expert on TV saying, well, uh, you know, I've run the epidemiology models, I'm the top scientist in the world, and millions of people are going to die unless you do this right now, uh, people who otherwise would speak out against uh, these intrusions on their freedom are cowered into fear. Yeah, yeah. Fear really had a lot to do. It, had, it was the driving force. And we've seen this throughout history, right? What happens when the pathogen comes along? People first in denial, then they get afraid, and then they cry out to, to government to do something. Uh, then government uses that as a way of getting more power. And then it's hard to get their hands off the power once they've done it. Well, there's been an interesting study that the pandemic, the fear factor here has been much worse, I think, than we've ever experienced in history. And a lot of that's driven by social media and a lot of it's driven 24 seven news cycle. And there's a study and I'm looking around on my papers and I can't quite find it right now, but the study came out that there's a correlation between uh, the, the central, how, how central government is and how you're getting information from all of one sources, it becomes self-reinforcing. Oh yeah, it's called uh, something that negative information spread through enough mass and digital media um, can create a mass hysteria that, that exacerbates and is self-reinforcing. And you know when, what happens is you got negative information from authoritative sources, media are politicized and social networks make the negative information um, omnipresent. It sounds like that's what's been happening. And I don't, you know, those of us who are fighting back to get ideas out through social media are finding it a hard time when, uh, in fact, above the, the show, if you look at it on YouTube, I'm sure they're going to have, this show contains information about COVID-19 <laughs> and be warned that the authoritative source for COVID-19 is the CDC. So the centralizing, the totalitarian aspect of the way this is being managed and manipulating is really scary. It's a little devastating to me personally. I've spent a long time, Bill, uh, many years writing about social media and celebrating information technology and our new 
age yeah. of instant access to everything. Yeah. And surely, I always assumed that this would give a truth a greater chance of getting out there and we would have become ever smarter and uh, ever more free in light of this. And it's, well, I'm yeah. with you. I thought the internet would be the greatest yeah. thing to, to in, yeah. on, on earth because we'd have information, information from everywhere, knowledge yeah. instantly. Yeah. We'd all have a level playing field about uh, what was true or, and wasn't true. Yeah, something went wrong. <laughs> we've, we've got we've got a lot to unpack. It, you know, I think the problem ultimately is that technology cannot fix problems of human nature. Uh, this is, you know, we are we are still uh, kind of a deeply ignorant uh, people. And um, I mean, there's a reason why freedom and human rights are the rare thing in history. You know, they're hard to get, hard to keep. Uh, it's very easy to lose all that stuff and default back to our lizard brains and and. Uh, and, and disease fears and, and panics. And, and I, didn't know, I didn't know how likely it was that we could ever go there. I never have experienced anything remotely like this in my whole life. So, you know, I think it's just shifted probably you, for you. And I think we were talking about this last night. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of it's like changed my perception of the social order and the fragility of civilization and uh, the well, intelligence uh, of the average person. I mean, a lot of, a lot of things are coming under question these days. I, I want to do some work on the social costs of this because I think the psychological impact of people being masked, being six feet, social distancing, I'm getting a little tired of, of stepping up to somebody to talk with them and have them back away like I've got the plague. <laughs> and that's happening all over. You go into a supermarket now and you know if you go the wrong way down the one-way aisle, uh, you know, you're a criminal, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're mass, you know, it, you're terrible. So we've got this, we're paying a big social price. And I think the, the inability to communicate because we're wearing these masks, uh, I think that has real long-term consequences, but Especially I you can't, children, right? yeah. well, you know, the times now, New York times, the, who used to post the COVID statistics every 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 day on its front page now i think has stopped doing it the times the times ran a piece day before yesterday about how psychologists in europe are now saying that the the pathologies among young people are extraordinary and the number of people thinking about or actually committing suicide so on and so forth the despair that's that's afflicted these people the young people in particular uh is is uh is, is even even the Times now is writing about the huge cost. I mean, is, 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 Jeffrey, I mentioned that to you, and you said, "Well, they're not writing about that here in the United States." <clears throat> well, they or start with they? Europe. They're like, "Oh, look at these stupid Europeans! Look at the terrible things that are happening in Europe." So we'll, they'll get to the U.S. eventually. I, th I feel like for about the last three months, uh, two months, that the Times is gradually walking back its its lockdown propaganda. Last year, do you have that sense? Yeah, uh, I mean, if you go back to a year ago, back in last uh, February and March, the Times was ground zero for um, alarmism, for promotion of these million death, multi million death statistics, for uh, putting Neil Ferguson up as like this world class expert, even though he had been wrong on every previous pandemic he had modeled and attempted to predict uh, like catastrophically wrong. But, well, I um, yeah, they, they, they've changed their tune. Well, I thought I thought Joe Joe Biden getting elected president, if he was elected, but I'm not going to get into that one today, um, was a very bad thing. Except for one thing, it does seem to feel that if if they could link the the pandemic to Trump, 
you know, I think they would have tried to bring that into the impeachment if they could have. But it, it, you know, Trump is gone. Now they've got a Biden. And so they've got to get on with it. And I think Biden came out and said, he said, uh, said something a couple of weeks ago, there's nothing we can do to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the next several months. Um, I think he could have made that there's nothing to do to change the trajectory of the pandemic period. But he, they're starting to say that they want to get out of the way, which leads me to the path out of this, which are everybody's locking onto the vaccines. Is, is, are the vaccines, do the vaccines work? Um, and are they the, 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 the key to the promised land? I think the evidence that's coming out of countries that have really high vaccination rates, uh, yeah, it's pushing them toward that herd immunity threshold, that plus the naturally acquired immunity uh, is the basic science behind it. Um, are vaccines the end all to, uh, to the pandemic? Uh, probably not. Uh, in the sense that this is a disease that's going to become endemic. It's going to persist as just a part of the human society for, uh, for time indefinite. It's, it's going to become more like the common cold, uh, just a regular seasonal strain. Uh, vaccines do get us closer to that point, but uh, it, it's not something that it's like we all take the vaccine and it magically disappears. Mm. One, one good thing about the vaccines is been that it takes people who are in a state of fear and panic, who've been living yep. inside their, uh, cramped inside their apartments, afraid of the virus, and makes gives them a, a, the sense of freedom and confidence that they can interact with others. Now, uh, it's true that placebo could do the same thing, but um, I'm grateful for the for the vaccine just for that reason. It's 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 emancipated people from their own debilitating uh, psychological terror that they've experienced experienced for the last twelve months. Yeah. Do you worry that now that the, pol the political class has recognized that they can bring about lockdowns and and uh, enforce social behavior that they'll use that same those same strategies with the next big thing that happens or you know the next scary virus or you know it could be used for uh, the environment. Absolutely, uh, you know as I said, the floodgates are open now that they discovered they can get away with this. And one theme that I, I, I've really picked up on that hasn't been given a lot of attention is the policy mechanisms used to implement these. They were all executive orders under emergency powers. Uh, they were uh, governors and mayors and, and presidents and uh, you know authority figures invoking powers that are outside the normal deliberative legislative norms. We never had a Congress meet and debate over the COVID lockdown bill. Right. Rather, it's a governor or a president or someone stepping in and saying, uh, well, our, our bureaucratic advisors at the CDC or our public health authority has said, you need to lock down now. Therefore, I'm issuing an emergency edict that'll cover the next uh, two weeks. Then two weeks becomes two months. Two months becomes a year. Uh, so it's a perpetual extension of this emergency state through emergency powers with basically no legislative checks and very minimal judicial checks on it. Uh, but, you know, one thing that could prevent that is if there are severe outcomes for the political class from what they've done for last Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the latest data on uh, basically our children have lost a year's worth of education. It's very tragic. The people have been, not, have been denied in-person education. They've not been getting an education. Really tragic. You know, the missed cancer screenings, uh, the health effects and the consequences, psychological and otherwise, it could actually lead to a kind of public backlash. And I'm, I'm actually encouraged. I mean, 
Cuomo's under severe investigation. He's being denounced even by CNN. Newsom's about to be recalled. Donald McNeil in the New York Times is fired. You know, a lot of lockdowners are going down. You're starting to see this, this trend. The, the biggest lockdown people are, are, are actually experiencing right now political and professional uh, meltdowns. And that's, I think that's a very good sign. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got Ron DeSantis as, you know, a hero to the multitudes, as is Christy Noem in South Dakota, the two most open uh, advocates of, of openness in their states. Well, the, you're, you're right. Uh, the, uh, there's, uh, there's, I think there's going to be a tremendous backlash against the teachers unions. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, the, this has always been their agenda, but now it's naked. And it's anti-science. I mean, you even have people that are pro-lockdown are saying that, well, this is not a disease that uh, places students, school-age students at high risk. Uh, all the science says that we should reopen our schools. And yet you have teachers unions and education bureaucrats that are politically invested in, uh, and, you know, basically living the easy life or are, uh, are, are resisting even to the point that uh, that governors like Gavin Newsom, who's about as pro-lockdown as you can get, is now in a battle with his teachers' unions because he knows that they're costing him his political career. Yeah, isn't it incredible? The closing the schools is one of the most, I still cannot figure out how it really happened. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Bill, you said this is always the agenda of the teachers' unions. I'm not sure I understood <laughs> that, the job, that the goal of teachers unions was not to teach, you know, uh, yeah. was to sit at home uh, on puppy to get husband. paid. <laughs> the goal was to get paid. <laughs> I don't know. Well, and, I, and I, owned a, I owned a couple of ed education businesses, K-12 education businesses that contract, you know, contracted or services for public schools. And I got to know them pretty well. And uh, they're not that interested in, I mean, some, I mean, the interesting thing about that experience was there are lots of people who are dedicated teachers, yeah. lots of people who love the craft and care, but that's not the union. And the union is basically doing a work rule thing, trying to keep people out of, out of that. And we had a program that taught kids Spanish and French, and we were looking for teachers who'd been in the, in the school systems to teach it. And for every one teacher in the school system, there were 10 others who had been in it, who hated it, yeah. who wanted to be a teacher, who wanted to be helping kids. So they're out there. I mean, the impulse to teach and to run schools is terrific, but you don't find it among the unions. So what, uh, where do we go from here? Is there, are we gonna end up with national vaccine cards in order to travel on, on planes or we- I don't believe that's gonna happen. I think that the polls are actually too uh, lopsided on this question. I think half, half the people are, are, swear, are, are not getting, if they have a choice, will not get the vaccine. I don't know how you, how you have a mandate under those conditions. What do you think? Well, the whole thing with the vaccination, I mean, people are talking about mandates. We're so far away from that point of, of it even being an issue. I mean, right now, the, the problem with vaccines is there, uh, there simply aren't enough of them, and the governments of several states around the country are completely botching the rollout. Yeah. There are people that want to get vaccinated that would volunteer and possibly even pay money to get vaccinated if they could, but they're barred because of bureaucratic rules and inept, incompetent rollout. Have you gone onto the websites to try to sign up for a vaccine? Oh, it's atrocious. It makes like the, the Obamacare website look exactly. like Exactly. Obamacare was a brilliant website by comparison. <laughs> yeah. and, and 
you can go on. I've looked on some of the, the websites locally in, in Massachusetts and Connecticut, and they'll say that there are vaccine doses available at the local Walgreens or the local CVS, but you don't qualify for it unless you meet these 10 different conditions uh, that you have to go through and check all these horrific boxes and, and fill out layers and layers of forms. And it turns out that, uh, okay, some of the, some of the conditions make sense. It's like they want to prioritize the elderly, but then uh, all these other stipulations or categories, like, well, if you work for the government or you work in certain preferred, or I guess they call them essential industries, you get preference for it. But it turns out there's not enough people in these industries to actually uh, uh, to, to meet the doses that are available in some of these locations. So what do you have is a, mitch, a mismatch between the supply for the vaccine and the demand for the vaccine and also the, the access to the vaccine. Which is why we don't like the, uh, the top-down solution. We like the free market exactly. voluntary exchange solution. We got a, we got a minute or two left. Uh, what's, what about some final thoughts? I, what should we be telling people about how they ought to be thinking about this and what we ought to be encouraging them to tell their friends? By this, I mean the lockdowns and where we go from here. Yeah, so uh, quit listening to the panic mongers of the epidemiology modelers. Uh, these people are pseudoscientists. They are living in a fantasy world and they have a track record that's played out not only in previous pandemics, but this pandemic of being wrong over and over and over again. Not one word of the advice that's come out of the lockdown scientists has proven true over the course of this pandemic. It's time to reinvest, uh, reinvestigate rigorous social science, rigorous uh, hard sciences, and return to what epidemiology knew to be true prior to March 2020. And that is this top-down society-wide approach of confining people into their homes simply does not work. It has high social costs and no efficacy in uh, changing the course of this pandemic. It's time to do something else. And in the future, let's remember that, that infectious disease and the, the new pathogens, that's a medical problem with a medical solution uh, or a medical means of mitigating it. Using the state or political apparatus and, and the bureaucrats and the police to try to be back a, a virus is sheer folly. I hope that that's the lesson we've learned in 2020 and we'll never repeat anything like this again. I hope, at least for not for another hundred years. Right. right. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Jeffrey Tucker, director of uh, editorial director of research at American Institute for Economic Research and, and uh, Philip Magnus, senior research fellow at AIER. I really thank you guys for joining. And again, I encourage everybody to go onto your website and, and maybe even more than that, support, support the work you're doing. Uh, thanks for setting us straight. And, uh, I'll be talking with you all uh, soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.